0: Gracious Heavenly Father, as we open your word, please open up our hearts and minds, our lives. Lord, speak to us by your Spirit that we would be changed more into the image of Christ. That those areas of our lives that need to be transformed, that the ways in which we have turned away from you you would call us back. Father, I pray that you use your word this morning to draw all of us, your people, to yourself. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Trey mentioned corralling his children. We also have three children, and we try as hard as we can to raise them in the Lord, to teach them the truths of scripture, to uh, disciple our kids. And it's challenging, as I'm sure any parent would attest to, whether you have one kid, five kids, it doesn't matter. It's challenging. But as we raise them, we try to teach them. And recently, uh, my four-year-old displayed, I'm sorry, my two-year-old displayed some of his knowledge. Um, some of the things that we have been teaching him as we're raising him in the Lord, things he's learning in our Sunday school classes. Um, my four year old asked my two year old, Do you know who lives in your heart? My two year old said, Yes. My four year old said, Who? My two year old said, With great enthusiasm, A chicken. We were in Target at the time, and it was very loud, and we were all just cracking up. Um, My daughter later asked my two-year-old, do you know who Jesus is? I mean, that's who we're celebrating for the Christmas. Do you know who Jesus is? And he said, yes, I know who Jesus is. I said, who is Jesus? He's Santa's son. (laughs) So just keep sending your kids to our Sunday school. This is what we're learning. (laughs) It is easy, I think, to confuse certain theological understandings. There's a lot that's coming at us. Uh, You've got the Sunday morning thing where I'm speaking to you, and you've got all of this theology and prayers and liturgy. But you've also got your own past, and you've got the culture around you, and you've got friends, and there are other people at different churches. We've got all this stuff that comes in to our lives. And I think at times we get caught up without even realizing it. I think at times there are some theological understandings that we might end up having that if we really thought through them, we might go, I don't know if that's right. Now, not quite to the extreme, hopefully none of you think a chicken lives in your heart. Maybe not that far, but it's still there. And this morning, our passage, it talks about one big idea, salvation. Now here's what it doesn't do. It doesn't really tell you what salvation is. It's not really the function of this passage. Rather, it's describing some of the characteristics. Um, It gives you some information about salvation without actually telling you this is salvation. And some of that information is where I feel like maybe at times we get off. If you would, open up your Bible to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, right there in the beginning. Now, in Luke's gospel, he has just given us the only account of the life of Jesus between his birth and when he goes into ministry. This one account where he's at the temple and he's 12 years old It's the only thing we have. And following that account, Luke says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And then he hits chapter three, and you heard Jeremy read it, there's all of this historical stuff in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and he begins to list rulers, seven of them, political and religious. And he starts with the biggest, Tiberius Caesar, and he moves his way down in significance to tetrarchs, people that rule small regions within this area of Palestine, but are ruling for Caesar. And then he hits the religious with Annas and Caiaphas. Now, technically, Caiaphas was the ruling high priest, but there seems to have been a tradition not unlike what we have with the presidency, where we still call ex-presidents president, because Annas is not technically the high priest, but he's still considered a high priest. So he's listing all of these people, and he sets this thing down, what he's about to describe Right smack into history. I mean, you can't avoid it. There is no way to read what he says right here as nothing more than he's just giving a legend, he's given a story, he's given a fairy tale. Because he doesn't just say, like when Caesar was ruling. I mean, this is detailed. This is like this ruler and this ruler and this ruler and this ruler and these religious rulers and all of it. It's where he sets down his account. Verse two, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He still continues. Uh, It's not just a guy named John. It's John, who's the son of Zacharias, who's in this place. Here is the first, what I would argue, is a misunderstanding of salvation. That salvation is a private matter. It is personal. Salvation is definitely personal. But it is not private. It has never been private. Read through the scriptures. You will never see this kind of attitude, which is very big in our culture. No, that's just between me and God. The things that, that I do, that's between me and God. You, you, don't, you can't say anything into that. One of the ways I think it shows up in our culture is when we separate our lives into that religious sphere over here and then everything else. There's this side over here that's kind of, it's a private part. Uh, maybe I go to church on Sundays, uh, maybe I do a couple little things, but my rest of my life is over here and there's a disconnect. When salvation is announced here in Luke 3, It is thrown right into the middle of history. It's not hidden. It's not private. It's very, very public. And it is always that way throughout Scripture. Faith, salvation, religion, whatever you want to say about it, it is not a hidden thing. It can't be. It impacts their lives so much that it has to show up. Because it actually, I once heard a politician say when he was running for office, I will not let my religion impact the way I serve in office. And he meant that as a positive thing. Like you can elect me even if you're not one of my, if you don't believe like me, because that's not going to impact how I lead. How can it not? How is it possible to have a faith that doesn't actually impact what you do? how you live, how you do your job, how you parent your kids, how you rule a city, lead a city. I maybe not rule is not the right word. Today, That is, that is religion and faith and salvation in the scriptures. It is a public thing. Now, that's hard. I admit that. I mean, it would be hard for them because you know everybody that he listed here, is against Christianity. It wouldn't be easy. It's the same thing today. Let me share with you some of what's happening. And you're gonna know a lot of this. There's a public school that's been performing a live nativity scene since 1970. You can see pictures of it. I mean, it's pretty amazing. These kids work really hard to do a live nativity scene. Recently, for this year, a judge ordered them to cease. They are not allowed to do it. These kids who trained so hard, they had to relearn something. Now, a couple of quotes. This is from one of the the people who was pushing to get this stopped. For a public school to have planned to perform a nativity scene in the first place is really out there. Really? At Christmas? It's the kind of thing you'd expect in a Catholic school or a private school or something out of the 50s, but not today. It had our jaws dropping. This is how the same person, the article ends with this line, religion should not be in schools because it endangers children. Being public with your faith won't be easy. I mean, just a couple other little ones. A New York school has omitted all religious references in Silent Night. I'm not sure what's left of the song. (laughs) The word Christmas has been banned, this is this year. The word Christmas has been banned from school flyers in a New Hampshire town. A judge ordered a nativity scene to be removed from an Arkansas courthouse lawn. It's all over the place. If you are going to be public with who you are in Christ, it might not be well embraced by everybody around you. But it is what salvation is. What does it mean for us? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. I am not at all saying that like when you leave here today, I want you to go to a restaurant and right in the middle of lunch, I want you to stand up and start yelling, I'm a believer in Jesus, you should be too. That's not at all what I'm talking about. Uh, you don't have to do what we did sometimes in college where we would, bend down to, we would start praying at a restaurant and somehow our prayer was like three times louder than our normal conversation. Let's let everybody know we follow Jesus. You don't have to do that either. That's, that's not what it means to have a public faith. A public faith doesn't mean you cram it down their throat. It means you're living so much of Christianity that anybody who knows you for any amount of time is going to know something. They're going to see it in some way. And I'm not up here to tell you, well, they're going to go, wow, I want to be just like you. You're so beautiful and wonderful and compassionate. Now show me how to be a Christian. No, it may not be that at all. But if your life is actually built on Jesus Christ, it should impact everything you're doing. That is a public faith. Um, I've got a friend, and uh, he's he's here today. I'm not going to point him out. I'm not going to call him by name or anything else. I'm just going to tell a real brief part of his story because I think his story is partially an illustration of this. The difference between standing on the table and screaming it out and just living it, being it. He has been going to a Muslim Bible study for some time now. Goes to this study that can last hours while these guys are studying, praying in a language he doesn't even understand sometimes because they're doing Arabic. Arabic but he's there and they keep asking him to come back and occasionally he gets to share something, but there is nothing private about who he is in the midst of that study. He's a follower of Christ who's not cramming it down their throats, but he's there as a follower of Christ to share Christ and to love these people no matter what happens. Christianity Salvation, it is a public thing, even if it is a personal thing. Keep going with me. Verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And you need to see a little bit of this background. It's been 400 years since the last book of the Bible was written at this point. There's this silence, this intertestamental period. And finally, a prophet shows up, proclaiming to speak for the Lord. And when he does, he calls people to something. A baptism for repentance. Number one, here's repentance. Repentance is when I recognize that I am not going the right direction I acknowledge it, and I turn away from it. I'm repenting. I am turning from something. This is not repentance. You get caught for something, and you're really, really sorry you got caught. That's not repentance. That's being sorry that you got caught. Repentance is recognizing that it's wrong, admitting it. You messed up, and then wanting to turn from it, turn away from it. That requires humility. Let me ask, how many of you like to admit when you are wrong? How many of you will hold on to it? As long as you can. You'll find ways of trying to make it so maybe you're not quite so wrong. Like, I will keep arguing. I will find some way. We don't like to be wrong. There's something humbling in that, to admit I messed up. But that is what John was calling them to. And to further add to that humility, he is calling primarily at this point Jews. And during the first century, the only people that were really being baptized were Gentiles. It was part of coming into the Jewish faith, but not for Jews. If you are a Jew and you're being told, I want you not only to recognize your sins, but I want you to do What we typically only do for Gentiles. That is a humbling experience. But that's what John is calling them to. Here's the misunderstanding. And I'm going to have to just explain this a little bit because when I first say it, your initial response is probably going to be no way, that's not me. I'd never think that. Salvation is earned. I believe that is a general cultural understanding of getting to heaven or whatever your afterlife is. And I believe it infiltrates us as well at times. Where we begin to think, there's something I have to do. There is some ladder, there are steps that until I do this, God's not gonna listen to my prayers. I've gotta earn something. I've done this thing so many times wrong that now I want to beat myself up or God's not going to accept me. We begin to find the ways in which we are trying to earn this thing. Salvation can only be received. It can never be earned. No matter what you do, no matter how good you might be for a period of time in your life, Remember no how many clothes you bring to this Operation Frostbite, you cannot earn your place with God. You can only receive what he's already offering. And that's what this is. What John is doing is preparing their hearts. I want you to recognize you need God. I don't want you to do something to earn it. There's not like five steps, and when you get to the fifth one, God is somehow obligated to now come to you and be in your life. You can't obligate God. All you can do is receive what he's already offering. But that requires humility. That requires the recognition that you can't. Man, the older I get, the harder it is to accept help. Because as things start falling apart, I still want to prove I'm a man. I still want to prove I can do it. And it, it just gets harder and harder to recognize I need help at times. But that is the essence of Christian salvation. I need help. I can't do, th- I can't do this. In the McDonald's in Union Station in Chicago, There was a lady there in September who took a picture and posted this thing on Facebook. She described what had happened. There was a man in a wheelchair, an automated wheelchair, in front of her very busy time of this McDonald's. And this guy comes up and he's in line and he goes forward and he's trying to say something to the cashier. And the cashier has to ask him a couple times to repeat himself because he can't quite hear it. And the lady can barely hear too. He he was asking for help. She wasn't totally sure what it was for. But this cashier shuts down his register and starts walking in the back. And the lady initially thought, because this guy was definitely handicapped, that maybe the guy was kind of freaked out and didn't know what to do, and so he just kind of took off. He'd gone to the back, and he was washing his hands, and he came out with gloves on, the the food-serving gloves. And he went with this guy over to a booth at McDonald's, and he began to cut up his food for him and feed it to him. The lady takes a picture of it, and she said, I'm just, I was weeping. Like this guy, in the middle of all of this busyness and everything else, had just shut it down, had gone over and was feeding this man. And it was beautiful, and it was compassionate. But I thought to myself, what kind of humility did it take this old man to sit in that McDonald's and have a a cashier feed him his food? I mean, this is an old guy who has got to have some pride because I know my pride is increasing the older I get. And yet here he is. He is asking for help for something he cannot do on his own. And he's willing to publicly receive it. The only way you will get what God wants for you is to humbly receive. You can't earn it. You can't do more things for it. You can't be better for it. If you pray a hundred times or 500 times or one time, you aren't going to earn it. You come with a broken and contrite heart. That receives what God is offering. That's the salvation he offers. Keep going. Verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is a very famous passage because it was made into songs and it's, it's on posters. And if you think about Christmas or John the Baptist, this passage just is there. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. From verse one up to this point, it was all leading to that right there. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Look at the beauty of this language. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, he is preparing the way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Notice it's his way. Not our way, his way. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And then creation begins to bow to the coming of the king. Notice how this road is made. Have you ever been on a mountain road? that like swerves and everything, it goes up and down, it goes through valleys. And or have you been on a straight road but you can see all of the mountains around you where they flattened it out? That's the image you're getting here, the flattening out. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked shall become straight, the rough places level. Here's the image. God is coming, not us coming, it's not us. It's not us seeking him. It's not us going to him. It's God coming to us and creation making a path so that he cannot be stopped to get to his people. And all flesh shall see it. Here's the other misunderstanding. And I think it goes on two sides, that salvation is limited. And what I mean by that is some people are too bad for it. Some people are just awful, nasty human beings. Wouldn't even call them human beings, they're monsters. It's Not for them. And then I think there's this other personal side. And I'm gonna to speak to you from personal experience. At times, the sin in my life has felt so awful that I have felt unworthy of what God has done to the point where I feel like, not just like I'm unworthy, but like I'm really unworthy. Like I can't even have it. And then I move into the second one misunderstanding and I start thinking about, not by these words, how do I earn it back? I've become too bad. I've done too much. I'm an awful person. And then I think I got to find a way to kind of work my way back. Salvation is for all flesh. It is not limited as unlimited to all who will receive, to all who will humbly say, I, I want what you have. I am screwed up. I don't care what you've done. Just think about the Apostle Paul. When you meet Paul, Paul is standing by as a religious leader while Stephen is being stoned to death. You could call Paul an accessory to murder. And as the religious leader on the scene, maybe even worse. And yet, there is forgiveness still. Even for Paul, you, whoever you are, whatever you have done, you have not gone too far for the grace and forgiveness of God. That's his thing here. Jeremy and I last week, as I know many of you probably did, um, we were handing out door hangers. Hopefully some of you took some stacks and you put them around your neighborhood um, Jeremy and I went right here, right behind pink, and we just kind of hit this neighborhood. and we walked, I don't know, for about an hour and a half, two hours, we walked through this neighborhood, um, and I'm really out of shape, I discovered, as I walked through this neighborhood. We weren't running or anything. We were just walking, and like by the end, Jeremy's doing great. And I'm going, "Oh, I've got to stop. My feet hurt, my knees hurt. And some of these homes, they are big. I mean, big homes. And as we would walk by these homes, we tried to be very respectful. If there was a no solicitation sign, we didn't go up. We just left them alone, we wanted to be respectful. And we'd pray for that house as we walked by and just leave it alone. Well, some of these really big houses, they had really long walkways. I mean, like, like marathon, like half-mile walkways. I mean, you had to go over a moat and like fight a dragon to get to the front door. And it was like that kind of thing, weaving in and out. And like you would get up there, and that's where the no solicitation sign was. (laughs) And I'm convinced that I'm I'm going up one of these, and I'd gotten through the moat and everything, and I look up, and there is no sign. And then I turn away, and I get up to the door, and it's there. I think they were waiting. They were like watching me. They're going, hey, look, he's almost through the moat. Oh, look, he's being eaten by the alligator. Wait, no, he made it. Okay, he's almost up here. The sign. And then I turn around and head back, and I look back, and it's gone. I think they pulled it. I think they were messing with me, like really messing with me. Turn back around. No, it's there again. No solicitation. Stay away from our home. You will never get that from God. There is never a no solicitation sign for Him, His door is open. It is always open. I would argue the problem is, and let me reverse it, we are the ones with the no solicitation sign. God is trying to get into our lives, and we are happy to have him walking around the you know, driveway in front of our house, but we don't want to fully let him in. He wants inside your life. Every bit of it. He wants inside your family, he wants inside your job, he wants inside your religion, every bit of it. He will never turn you away. Are you turning him away? Three things about salvation that I I think come out sometimes, and again, I I firmly believe that maybe 99% of you here, you wouldn't say this, you would never go, yeah, salvation has to be earned, or salvation is just a private matter. It has no bearing on my actual life. Salvation is, well, it's only for the good people. It's not for these people or that people or those people. I don't think you'd ever say that. But ask yourself, do you ever live that way? Does it ever just come out in the way that you're maybe treating people or yourself even that you feel it somewhere? As it's not what God is offering. The king has been announced. The road has been made flat. We have to receive. You know, Advent, you see all the purple? You, know, it's, you, you only see this for four weeks. It's for the Advent season. It's royal, it's kingly because we are welcoming the king. We are, mo- we are remembering his first coming, and we're moving toward it. If you notice the, the manger scene up here, which you can't really see because it's, it's big, but it's really small. Um, there's no baby because we're moving toward that point. We're moving toward Christmas and the birth. And when he's born, he's born the king. But when he comes back, he comes back as the king of kings and lord of lords. And as we looked at last week, He will come on the clouds in all of his power and glory. There's only one thing you can do when somebody that powerful comes into your life. You can't add to what he's doing. You can't, like, receive it and then go, yeah, but I'm going to keep it over here in a corner under a bushel somewhere. The only thing you can do is go, wow, I get to serve the king. I get the privilege and joy of serving the king who has forgiven my sins and offered me eternal life. That's what I get by just humbly admitting that I need it and asking him in. Will you let the king be fully in your life this season? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son the King of kings and Lord of lords who humbled himself and became one of us, who lived our life, who went through all of the pain and the suffering along with the joy and the laughter to really know who and what we are and then gave his life. Lord, may we embrace the king this season and from this point forward. Completely and fully. And it's in his name that we ask it. Amen.